Welcome to Review Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Audrey Provenzano, joined by David Rosenthal and Thomas Kim. Today, we're bringing you a journal club, but in a slightly different format this week. Instead of a deep dive into one study, each of us are going to give you a brief overview of a recent research paper on an array of topics. And at the end, we'll share a media pearl with you, a book or article or movie or TV show, not necessarily related to medicine, but we've enjoyed and want others to check out. So without further ado, uh, Thomas will take it away with our first article this week. All right. My article is called Outcomes in Older Adults with Multimorbidity Associated with Predominant Provider of Care Specialty. Uh, it's by Bynum et al. out of the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. Uh, it was published in um, the Journal of the American Ger- Geriatric Society. Uh, so for me, this, this article uh, came to my attention partly because uh, you know, I think all three of us would uh, easily say that primary care is really great. We may espouse it sometimes at the expense of specialty care, uh, right? We all have that kind of tribalism in us. <laughs> but, uh, you know, personally, like, I, I feel like I'm frequently having this discussion of uh, specialty care versus, gen- you know, generalist care. Uh, I feel like I'm defending my, my life choices in some ex- respects, trying to get... Uh, more opportunity to do obstetric care as a family family medicine provider. Uh, so really looking at, well, how do primary care doctors perform uh, versus specialists uh, was kind of an interesting study. These studies tend to be really, really hard to design. And so the, the body of evidence so far doesn't really describe well uh, whether specialists or primary care doctors are better. Uh, and part of it is because patients who go see specialists are kind of generally could be considered different um, as a group, right? They, they could be riskier, and then uh, if they are, then it's hard to draw conclusions because of that selection bias. So this study basically looked at um, all Medicare beneficiaries uh, in the year 2011 who were not in nursing homes and had, had at least two chronic conditions, and they wanted to uh, consider that people with multiple medical problems probably have the most to gain from having a generalist um, be the predominant provider of care, uh, as opposed to specialists who may kind of focus on one area to the detriment of others so you know, sample- or a more holistic approach. So their sample was all Medicare patients with two or more chronic conditions? Their sample size must have been enormous. Right. So they found 26 million beneficiaries. These are only fee-for-service uh, Medicare beneficiaries, I should note, okay. and doesn't so include Medicare, Medicare Advantage. Advantage. Okay. Right. Uh, and then what they did was they assigned these folks to be um, either a group that has a predominant provider of care that's a generalist uh, or a primary care doctor, uh, sorry, primary care clinician. So it would be a family medicine doctor, a general internal medicine doctor, a nurse practitioner, or a geriatrician. Uh, and if, if more visits, ambulatory visits you had that year were with somebody in you know those four categories, they would call your predominant provider of care a primary care clinician. Mm-hmm. And if it was with a specialist, they would say your predominant provider of care uh, was a specialist. Now, the, I think the innovative part of this study is that they didn't just compare those two groups because like I said, there, there can be selection bias when you do that straight comparison, but they did a propensity score match. Uh, so making it quasi experimental. And so when they did the match, then they were able to look at hopefully two more comparable groups. And uh, they looked at you know, basically three, three big outcomes, uh, mortality after one year, 
the use of services is particularly hospitalization, and then finally uh, expenditure uh, and, and, the, and costs. Uh, so they ultimately found nearly four million beneficiaries uh, for this for this study, uh, two thirds of which had their predominant provider of care be a primary care clinician, again, family medicine, internal medicine, geri uh, geriatrics, or a nurse practitioner. So they noticed a small statistically significant difference in mortality, but they, uh, the, the study authors basically say, you know, in terms of quality, at least uh, measured by mortality, you know, this is, um, you know, uh, similar. But the major difference that they saw was spending. They found that 1,781 more dollars were spent per beneficiary who had a specialist predominant provider of care. Uh, and this is probably from uh, spending more on professional fees, on, on testing, on images, uh, and hospitalizations. And, um, you know, they, they extrapolate that to say that this, could, this is potentially $7 billion of annual savings in Medicare uh, if these folks were, had a predominant provider of care that was a primary care clinician. Hmm. That's interesting. Are they able to parse out sort of how that cost spent? Is it medications? Is it provider fees? Is it hospitalization? They, they weren't able to do that. They did. They, they actually did do some of that. Uh, they attributed it mostly to the fact that specialists, you know, per visit cost more uh, in their fees. Uh, they order um, more tests and more images. But they also found that uh, the rate of hospitalization, if you're a specialist patient, uh, you were there were 40 more hospitalizations per 1,000 beneficiaries, uh, eight more ambulatory care-sensitive admissions per 1,000. So not insignificant. And they you know, say that this ends up being about $1,800 per beneficiary of additional spending without a major difference in at least mortality over a year. Did they do any adjustment for morbidity? Because you could argue that you know, maybe folks who have a specialist managing most of their care have some kind of very complicated comorbidity that is going to make them sick or are going to make them in the hospital more often, like really bad aortic stenosis or something. So that's a great point. Uh, they went about looking for anybody who had at least two of 18 diseases they call the chronic diseases, but it was based off ICD-9 codes, so they couldn't tell you the severity of those diseases. Mm -hmm. Now, they did the matching based off covariates they thought would approximate some of that, age, sex, race, dual eligible status, median census tract income, um, and the conditions, uh, the, the types of conditions, as well as a hospital region that was meant to adjust for like how available uh, a specialist might be in their region. But they, you know, but it is a it is a, a weakness here that they're not able to tell you. Well, this person's CAD is much more severe, uh, and they're getting a, they're getting their care predominantly from a specialist cardiologist. Right. So the groups could be different, but this is for me kind of one step closer to. Um, to answering a question about whether quality is much worse or better with primary care, mm -hmm. it seems like at least in terms of mortality, it's similar, but there's a big uh, cost savings upside. Right. So I have something completely different. So um, my my paper, so first of all, it focuses on the problem of the doorknob phenomena in primary care. Um, and of course, the doorknob phenomena is something when you as a physician, you might say at the very end of your uh, encounter, is there anything else you wanted to discuss? 
or any other questions. And then um, oftentimes, very right at the end of the encounter, there's a late disclosure of very important information, right? As the patient's leaving, I have chest pain, or that there's stressors such as financial or safety or transportation issues uh, that alter the management. Uh, and the decision-making and priorities for that visit at the end of the encounter. So this is sort of a, a study uh, that's an article that was published in, the, in a journal called Patient Education and Counseling in April 2017 by Marsha Wittink et, et al. Um, and so why is this important um, in primary care? So I think we all know that there are many, many barriers to communication between patients and physicians, um, and that uh, in the paper... We know that there that medical care and encounters have sort of arbitrary boundaries, um, and prioritization of patient goals and provider goals uh, is not necessarily an intuitive process. And there's like a lot of substantial power asymmetries between patients and providers. Um, so what did this actual study do? So I thought what was interesting they performed a randomized controlled trial of a pilot use of the effects of something that was called a customized care. Uh, which is a novel technology-based intervention designed to help patients disclose their stressors. And it employs a formalized discussion prioritization tool, which I'll call DPT. Basically, they put iPads or some sort of tablet device in the waiting room uh, that has this um, DPT or prioritization tool before the encounter that uh, patients can go through to help them prioritize their um their needs and their questions, um, and I'll sort of talk about it a little in a second, and prints out something that they can then go in to discuss with the, with uh, their doctor. And the main outcome of the study was the likelihood that patients disclose their stressors um, better in the patient PCP visit. So the likelihood that they'll actually discuss these stressors, whether they be financial, safety, or transportation. Some secondary outcomes were the patient's perceived confidence to disclose stressors after a PCP visit. Also, whether patients felt activated and they're activated uh, during the visit, and also the promptness with which the patients disclose their stressors in the hey, patient Dave? primary care visit. Yeah. Hey, Dave, what was the comparison group for this? Yeah, so it was standard care. So, so it was those who went to the same providers but without doing this, the, the, the check-in extra process. Hmm. Um, it was a study just to, to a study go through the methods a little bit, at the University of Rochester Medical Center in an urban primary care clinic that serves primarily low-income patients. And it was restricted to adults greater than 40 years of, a, of age with two or more chronic medical conditions. They excluded resident providers, they excluded non-English speakers, and those with a history of either cognitive impairment or history of psychosis. And the patients had to show up 30 minutes early to the appointment to meet with the study staff to do this thing before they saw their visits. Hmm. And again, questionnaires before they were done before and after the visit. And then in the intervention arm, the patients completed this tablet-based DPT before the visit, and it printed a customized question prompt list for patients to share with their primary care doctors. And then all of the recordings, they were audio recorded all the subjects before the visit, during the visit, and immediately after the visit. So audio recordings that were then coded based on this, uh, um, some few standard coding schema by two separate coders, wow. which I won't go through. There were 60 total patients, 31 in the intervention, and 29 in the usual care. Um, there were 12 different family medicine trained providers, and the mean visit length was about 24 minutes in the study group and 22 in the usual care arm. 
So interestingly, um, patients, the results were that the patients in the intervention arm were more likely to bring up stressor, uh, stressors that they had that they were specifically primed to in that um, tablet tool. And that 85% in the intervention group mentioned one of the primed codes um, or one of the stressors that they're having. Um, whereas in usual care without the, the tablet, only 48% mentioned the code. So almost twice, you know, 85 versus 48%. And then the secondary, secondary outcomes are actually, um, there weren't significant differences. So um, in, uh, in patient activation, although there was a greater perceived confidence by patients to share their stressors in those that had been primed with the technology. What, what um, kind of stressors were they asked about? So in particular, it was mostly about sort of food insecurity, housing insecurity, or financial insecurity, and some transportation issues. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and they go through this in sort of um, in detail in, in the paper themselves, but sort of how they actually, you know, um, how they actually present these things visually. Um, and, um, you know, I'll just mention one of the really other interesting outcomes before I get to why this matters is that patients in the inter intervention group were much more prompt meaning earlier in bringing up their stressors about these sort of what we would think of as maybe social determinants or other sort of uh, things that aren't necessarily fit into the biomedical model much earlier in mm -hmm. the visit. So in the transcripts that they transcribed, the median line of like the number line number as they go through the, the, the transcriptions was 108 in the primed group versus 310 hmm. in the non-primed group. So almost, you know, you, I don't know, that's a, sort of a surrogate for how quickly people brought up these, these issues within the visit. So why this matters, I think this study sort of highlights some of the challenges in patient-physician communication, sort of some of the power asymmetry, and, yeah. and also priming, and sort mm -hmm. of the ability for technology to potentially assist with agenda setting and prioritization, and also for patient empowerment, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in particular, it can sort of destigmatize some of the questions related to social determinants of health and stressors, yeah. and normalize that these are sort of important parts of the medical encounter. Um, and while this is a really small pilot study, that I guess it shows that you know patient-centered interviewing techniques and are other methods that sort of help elicit stressors from patients, and much, much earlier in the patient encounter, will reduce the doorknob ph uh, phenomena. So, interesting paper. Yeah, it is interesting. It makes me think about, you know, Intermountain Health and Kaiser, and I, I, I know partners in the Boston area, a lot of uh, health systems are now screening patients for social determinants of health, and this could be another way to do it. I guess my um, frustration with these kinds of interventions, though, is just that um, the language barrier, and it, it's just hard to, hard to get these kinds of things um, to reach to all patients but yeah i think that's true it doesn't reach right and they excluded in particular right language issues and then things about cognitive impairment and psychosis or severe mental illness as a surrogate for mental illness um plus they had people had to show up 30 minutes beforehand to take place mm -hmm. which which in and of itself it may not be realistic and generalizable to most to most clinics yeah. i mean um, also those are probably patients who are a little bit more empowered to be able to you know, make that happen uh, mm -hmm. on on a such a short pilot uh, phase. You got it. But I think I think it does highlight though that you know the power asymmetries and that when you give mm -hmm. that you you can prime people to ask certain things and that people will bring it up and that if people feel like they have um, they they're primed with it and they're come in with a piece of paper that doctors will negotiate and talk about those. You know, people will be more willing to talk about those things. So. Great. Yeah.
My paper is called Cost Effectiveness of Emergency Department Initiated Treatment for Opioid Dependence by Susan Bush et al. And it was published in the August 2017 edition of the journal Addiction. So the senior author on this paper, Gail D'Onofrio, came on the podcast a couple of months ago to talk about the initial RCT that this cost-effectiveness study is looking at. So in the initial RCT, they randomized patients who came into the emergency room with opioid use disorder who were seeking treatment. They randomized them to three arms. In one arm, patients received usual care, which was referral to resources in the community. In another arm, patients received referral to resources in the community and a brief intervention. And then in the third arm, patients were started on buprenorphine in the ED and were given some counseling and were referred to the community, but given an appointment. So they were given an appointment to follow up with a primary care provider who would continue to prescribe the buprenorphine that they received in the ED. And they had enough to make that make it to that, that next appointment. So those were the three arms. And they looked at rates of patients who remained in treatment at 30 days and use of illicit opioids. Not surprisingly, um, patients who were started on buprenorphine in the emergency room did much better. They had higher rates of staying in treatment, uh, lower rates of illicit opioid use at 30 days, um, which is all very intuitive, but it was a really impressive study. Um, so in this, in this study, they went back and did a cost-effectiveness analysis of the three arms. And not surprisingly, uh, initiation of buprenorphine in the emergency room was most cost-effective of the three interventions. And they looked at a couple of things. One was calculating and comparing costs of all healthcare consumed by the three groups. So patients who had buprenorphine initiated in the ED consumed more healthcare in those 30 days in terms of office visits because they were in treatment, but they um, had much lower costs of hospital admissions and inpatient residential treatment. Uh, interestingly, ED consumption of healthcare was about the same among the three arms. And, you know, the intervention itself isn't that expensive. So, you know, it's intuitive that this would be cost effective. Wavering providers isn't that expensive. Um, presumably in some settings, training someone and setting up the infrastructure to permit that kind of logistical linchpin of this intervention of scheduling patients with a provider who can provide ongoing buprenorphine in the outpatient setting before they leave the emergency room. So they leave both with an appointment and with enough medication to make it to that appointment is really, really key. And there's got to be some investment there. Um, but it's not hugely expensive. There was an interesting sub-analysis looking at crime. So, you know, patients who have um, opioid dependence may commit crimes to um, pay for pills or heroin. And of course, uh, again, not surprisingly, patients on treatment with buprenorphine had lower crime costs. So, um, you know, showing the benefit to society to um, treating these patients with buprenorphine. There were some weaknesses of the paper. The crime rates and the healthcare consumption was all self-report, and they uh, didn't use qualies um, in terms of calculating the cost-effectiveness. So it's difficult to compare this to, you know, some intervention for heart disease, for example. Um, so 
I just thought this was a really wonderful uh, piece of work. I hope that they continue to um, look at the, you know, questions um, on this issue. And I think it's a really important topic of how to make this really work, um, developing relationships with a referral base. In some areas of the country, this is probably really, really hard, especially rural areas where there are a few treatment options to begin with. But then, you know, there are all the logistical barriers of transportation and Um, But I just think it's so important for patients to, you know, leave the emergency room with an appointment and with enough medication to make it. They leave such chaotic lives, and I think that intervention um, could be really important in preventing relapse and, um, you know, keeping them healthy. So bravo to them for this paper. Yeah, and I'll I'll just mention I know all a lot of these authors because they're colleagues of mine at Yale and oh, they're, right. they do one they do wonderful work here. I saw a bunch of them actually today, including Dr. D'Onofrio. and and I'll mention they've been really at the fourth forefront of of sort of tackling this in the from the emergency room perspective and sort of connecting from both from the emergency room to outpatient care. And I think that's actually like you mentioned the the both the. The sweet spot and the hardest thing to do mm-hmm. is to create those linkages between the emergency use and the outpatient um, centers. Um, and so they've done an incredible job of building that, um, building those linkages, both between research, but also um, in actual clinical care for patients. So the question is always like, is that generalizable to other mm-hmm. places that don't have those relationships? Right. And that's, that's the big question mark, right? And I right. think that what you could see is in, in different um, environments where there might be more um, collaboration or maybe academic medical centers are pl- probably the places where these kinds of things can be done or in places that are more aligned as ACOs or where there's actually a, a cost. Um, there's some larger organization network that can do it. Um, the, it sort of argues for the bigger you are, the probably the more likely you can take advantage of this. But to the extent that, like, if you can do it because there are primary care doctors that you can link up to, um, it, you know, this analysis is, you know, gives you some ammo to say this is cost effective, mm-hmm. this is better than the alternative, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, uh, would be evidence for my administrators to say, you know, we should consider this. I mean, let alone the other cost savings in terms of, you know, other opportunity costs from, you know, using substances, you know, days mm-hmm. missed from work, being able to take care of your children, et cetera, Absolutely. et cetera. Uh, and, and those things weren't even factored into here. So right. in terms of the cost to our to us as a healthcare system, sure. But there's so many other right. um, uh, savings. Right. It's just the right thing to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Agreed. Okay. So who's got our pearl to share? I just have a, a, a book recommendation, uh, eye-opening book that I finished uh, called Blitzed, which is Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. Oh, I heard uh, about that. Yeah. It's um, worth reading. It's sort of um, somewhat shocking, but in, in to, to paraphrase, they highlight both um, sort of the pharmaceutical industry's complicitness in um, manufacturing drugs for uh, the Third Reich. So both the soldiers, like um, in, in particular, Preventin, which was essentially crystal methamphetamine for most of the Nazi soldiers, um, which is probably responsible for Blitzkrieg, and then also sort of the personal habits uh, with um, substances of Adolf Hitler. And um, it's, it is an interesting read. I think there's some questions. I, a lot of people have had questions and sort of critiques about sort of some of the um, veracity of some of the data and how we, things can be verified. But it's a really good read, and it, it is... Um, in some ways, very humbling. And as we 
talked about opioid use disorder and other other substance use disorders in today's press. Uh, it's really interesting to hear about this from the the early uh, 20th century. Great. Thanks, Dave. What about you, Audrey? So uh, I just read this book called Almost Human by a guy named Lee Berger. It's about his career, and he's discovered um, this new ancient paleo human that he named Homo naledi, and they found these fossils of these people in this cave. He had some friends who were cave explorers, and they found these fossils and recognized them as hominin and photographed them and sent him these these photographs um, brought them to his house in the middle of the night and uh, it is just the most incredible story of discovery and one of the really interesting parts about it was that the cave like there was this one part of the cave that was so narrow most people couldn't fit in and so they you know they gather a bunch of paleoanthropologists to excavate the cave and take out the fossils and examine them but um, no one could fit into the chamber where most of the fossils were except for women. So it ended up being that they hired mostly mostly young women to come and excavate the cave and publish all these findings. And it's a great story of adventure and discovery and women in science, and I highly recommend it. You, you guys are going highbrow, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll bring up the rear with some lowbrow. <laughs> uh, no, no, I guess it's not that low, but uh, I, I would say that I'm, uh, you know, I'm a consumer of the golden era of television, so uh, <laughs> I, I just binge watched uh, Insecure uh, from HBO. It's by uh, Issa Ray. It's a terrific show. You, you got to go watch it if uh, you have access to HBO, but it's uh, it's really funny. It tells stories kind of confidently. Uh, the cinematography is really good. But basically, it's the story. Um, I think it's kind of been described as a as a as a black uh, culture version of Thirty Rock. But uh, Issa Rae kind of made her name uh, doing this uh, this uh, awkward black girl YouTube video series. And um, so there's some continuity with that. Uh, and the stories uh, she tells of her main character are just really um, just really rich, interesting, and uh, um, there's stories about, I think, universal human being awkward experiences of being kind of lost in your 20s that mm. I think most people would identify with and find incredibly relatable. Uh, but it's filtered through uh, her lens as a person of color, as a, as a black woman uh, in American society. So uh, for me, one of the most like one of the most interesting things she does is uh, is portray and examine uh, being black and a person of color in the workplace and mm. kind of show the microaggression and tokenism and uh, code switching that people do. Uh, and in particular, uh, I mean, she does this for lots of different characters in the show, uh, uh, most of whom are black. But her main character works for a uh, nonprofit that's focused on inner city youth. Uh, and it's you know predominantly made up of um, you know, well-intentioned, well, well-intentioned, socially liberal white people, uh, and so it's um, it's really funny. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you, I definitely recognized certain mm. you know sins being committed. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely were familiar to me uh, from from past experience. So I think um, the show is really smart. If you're interested in in race, uh, if you're interested in. Um, uh, kind of the experience through her lens. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a great show. Great. You've been listening to Review of Systems. You can find all links to all the papers we talked about on our website, www.rospod.org. 
as well as an archive of our previous shows. If you enjoyed listening, a quick reminder to please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, and wherever you listen, and share us with your friends. Tweet us your thoughts at ROS Podcast and find us on Facebook. Let us know what you think of this format, especially this new one, and if we should use it again. Or you can email us at Audrey at ROSPod.org or Thomas at ROSPod.org or David at ROSPod.org. We'd love to hear from you and thanks for listening. Take care.